Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. everybody thank you for tuning into today's episode of coffee cows and crops um, i'm chatting with daryl chubb today about managing um, your soil type and your soil health so before we get into that daryl can you give a brief introduction of yourself and how you got into soil health to begin with thanks for the invite joanna and and to peace country beef i live near calgary alberta just north north of calgary and we own some land and run some cows and I have, I'm married and have a, a little boy named Will. I'm originally from Saskatchewan. Um, I got my degree from University of Saskatchewan and then moved to Alberta in 2002. Sold some, uh, some crop inputs along the way, bought some grain for with Cargill and then spent just about 10 years uh, managing a grain farm we were on the larger side. There was a fairly large feedlot within the operation as well. So it's kind of where I got, got going on that. And in 2012, I, I left that position and started my own uh, independent consulting company, which is still current today, of which I'm completely independent. I don't sell anything. I don't represent any company. And um, it's just me so far. I, I haven't hired anyone or brought anyone into the into the business. So what got me going down soil health was uh, in 2014, I started my Nuffield scholarship and I was, had the ability to travel around, look at different parts of the world, met many different people. And I got connected to Nicole Masters. We got chit-chatting and talking and what she was looking for and wanting to do is kind of the, the path that I kind of found on my Nuffield journey, um, asking different questions. There was more to agriculture, more to farming than what, what we were currently doing. So I spent a month with Nicole traveling through Australia and New Zealand after my Nuffield and just learning what she does, how she looks at things. So that really got me going down the path. And to date, um, I am on my own, uh, not working with Integrity Soils anymore. So yeah, but she definitely definitely got me going down that path. Awesome. Before we get into uh, kind of the nitty gritty, I guess, of soil health, um, I know you've done a ton of work across the province and done a lot of different stuff. So can you give our listeners a bit of an overview of what kind of soil types we have in Alberta and how they might affect um, people's management strategies and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I am spread out into southeastern Saskatchewan, uh, and then as far north as Manning, and as far south as in Alberta as uh, Waterton Park. So, so it is a pretty vast area, and you know it sounds like a big area, but yeah, it's not that bad. The joy of it is is being able to work in these different areas and understanding different challenges at different times of years where so many in the peace country this last year were, was wet, but in Southwestern Saskatchewan, they couldn't buy a raindrop. So 
it, it was an interesting summer because the people that were super dry were like, oh, I'd take a drought any day. And the guys that were flooded and really wet saying I'd take a drought any day over over flooding. So it it puts a lot of it's, it's a completely different perspective, which is great. So um, some of the soil types that I deal with is, uh, yeah, anywhere from light brown dry to black, light black to black and wet and heavier clays. So it's a, it's quite a vast array. And then in terms of, um, sorry, you asked about management, probably the, the hardest one to talk about around management is water. And as I just said, I got to experience both extremes and that's hard. It's really hard to, because if you're really wet, you can't get anything planted, can't get anything growing. If you're super dry, you can put everything in the ground you want, but if the seed won't seed and the forage won't grow, pretty tough to feed a cow or harvest a crop. So I had some areas that were very that did very well this year. And and so those conversations are a little bit easier around cover crops or forage or uh, inputs or I guess whatever kind of operation they are. That makes sense. Um, so the main reason lots of people start talking about soil health to begin with is getting those, those right, the right inputs and the right nutrients for whatever crop they're growing. So how do producers go about determining what their soil is lacking? Can you talk a bit about soil testing and soil pits and that sort of stuff? Yeah, uh, that's a big question. And where to begin on that one would be I guess you got to assess your own farm and or ranch, whatever, you know, whatever enterprise you're in, determine some of the goals, look at what is a realistic goal at the, uh, to start with. So um, if you're predominantly a grain farmer and you're looking at your, your broad acre agriculture, to date, we've been looking mainly at chemical soil testing, which is done by which has been done for a number of years but there's more and more soil tests and different types of tests coming on and I like a good balance of all those tests Chem being able to look at the physical uh, part of the soil test which is going to help determine some of the limitations such as compaction for example then we can look at more of the balance and what's made up in that soil balance of the cations for example you know, where is the calcium at? Where's the magnesium at? Like potassium as well. And some of the micronutrition is at. where, what are we starting with? And then of course we get into the biological side of things, talking about carbon and organic nutrients and the biology itself. So those tests by themselves are very, can get very expensive. There isn't really a test that exists that I know of, um, where we can get all in one. Um, there are some labs down, down in the States that can give us, you know, the chemical and physical, and then a, you know, a partial biological test with PLFA testing. So there are labs that can do all three, um, but still get rather expensive. So the way I look at soil testing as well is that it can be expensive. As long as you're going to do something with the information, um, great. 
I don't promote testing every year, every acre, if all you're looking at is nitrogen, for example. I know some people aren't going to agree with that, but you know, that's the beauty of agriculture. Everyone's got an opinion. So if you're going to do something with it and look at something more than just straight nitrogen on a soil test, fantastic. But uh, unless there's some really major, you know, say if it's subsoiling or manure or different things that need to be kind of kept track of, well, then testing every year would be advantageous. Or, you know, I've got a few clients that are uh, grazing uh, season-long covers. So we'll, we'll follow up with some Haney testing this spring just to understand where that nutrient where some of those nutrients are that a chemical test wouldn't pick up and really see where the organic and that organic levels have come to, where the carbon levels are at um, and what kind of changes we've made in a, in a short time. And then in, in terms of a soil pit or even just even digging holes in your own field with a, with a shovel, don't even have to dig, dig pits, but you know, the, what I'm looking for would be how, how far are the, how far are we rooting? How far do those roots go down? What color is it? Are we, are we making changes in terms of soil color, which is a great indication of soil carbon. And then, and then too, just looking at some of the physical characteristics, where is that compaction layer? What's the aggregation like? So that's some of the things that I would look for in a soil pit and, or just digging holes. And on that note, um, they taught us to do a texture test in school where you uh, take your handful of soil and you put some water in it and you see if you can make a ribbon out of it or and what it feels like and that sort of stuff. So how important do you think um, soil texture is when you're starting to make these sorts of management decisions? Part of that soil texture is going to revolve around water as well. You know, sandy soils versus heavy clay, high magnesium soils. So um, many people know what kind of soil texture they, they have on the extremes on their farm, right? From solenistic to sandy to, you know, whatever it might be. How important is knowing the, the texture? Well, yeah, that's definitely part of it. But then there's also, you come back into some of that nutrition balance in terms of what, what's the magnesium load? What's the calcium load? Um, sandy soils are going to be, you know, where's your organic matter? Where, what's your carbon level at? So are they important to know that the textures? Absolutely, because it, and sometimes it'll, it'll revolve around what's the, what's the potential on that? What's the current potential? Um, you know, it might mean places to graze cows or feed cows or areas to spread manure or, or something along that line, knowing the texture and, and quality of the soil. Right. Um, so when people do get their soil tested, um, what would you say, what, what's the first thing you look at on a soil test? So if we look at a chemical soil test and, and I use ANL predominantly out of Ontario, um, just that's what I've always used that uh, I understand their tests. I know where their numbers are at. So my, my eye goes predominantly to organic matter. Where is that organic matter in that soil? And then I'll look at the pH to understand 
you know, there, there's going to be some limiting factors there. And then I'll look at the cations, uh, the, the base saturation. So the balance of the cations, which is your sodium, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and then hydrogen is in there as well. So that'll, that'll tell me. And then with that is the cation exchange capacity. Um, it'll tell me how big is that soil? What kind of potential is that soil? So on cation exchange capacity, for example, a big number might be 30, you know, mid twenties and up. A low number might be 10 or 12 and below. So a lower number will typically point me towards perhaps it's, it's sandier, lighter ground. Whereas a, he, a bigger number will indicate a little bit more in terms of a clay soil. And especially in Western Canada here, a lot of times if those numbers are high, we have a lot of magnesium in our soil. So those are the numbers that I go to first on a, on a chemical test. Uh, I like using a Haney test. I'm learning more and more about that test all the time. And my, within that test, they do a, um, a, uh, a water extractable carbon, and then they also do a, a, a respiration number. So those are two of my go-to uh, numbers there to understand how alive is that soil and how much food is in that soil. That's interesting. Um, and just to go back to the cation uh, exchange capacity for a minute. Um, how does a high or a low number affect um, your your nutrients and stuff in your soil? So a higher number, like I say, it's an indicator, and it can be an indicator of texture. It can be an indicator of moisture to a certain degree. So say there's more clay in that soil. So now you have more particles per given unit. So it's like it's like a bushel weight. Or a bushel. A bushel of wheat is a volume. The weight it can vary from year to year based on quality. Well, same with that CEC. So you might have a bigger number, but you can also have more clay particles or soil particles within that within that sample, and it becomes more surface area. So a higher number could hang on to more more cations uh, compared to a lower number. So the potential fertility of that soil could be higher. Now, nitrogen, nitrate specifically, it can move through that soil, right? So soil is negatively charged typically. Uh, nitrate is negatively charged. So it can, that's why we get leaching or, or volatilization as well. So nitrogen can't really hang on like in the nitrate form can't really hang on to into that soil but that soil can hang on to our cations and hang on to more of them if we have a bigger number right okay that makes sense but with with that too is it doesn't come without its challenges because i mean there is there there is heavy clay soil up in the piece right we we know that and it gets sticky, it gets wet, it gets waterlogged. And so it has its challenges, but it can hang on to more nutrition, more nutrients at, at opportune times. Okay. So once you know where you're at with your soil and your nutrients and that sort of thing, and kind of what you should, what a reasonable expectation of that soil is, um, there's lots of 
options out there for like soil amendments and fertilizer and chemicals to get where you want to be for whatever crop you're growing. Um, so how do you usually work with people on selecting those products and figuring out a plan for improving soils? This is the way I look at it with, with clients and people and, and having the conversation before it gets into amendments. The amendment isn't gonna, <clears throat> gonna fix the issue. Typically, it can be part of the part of the solution. We talk talk about a lot about management first and foremost, because for soils to change, for crops to change, for everything to change, you know, we can't just continue doing the same thing over and over and over and hope something changes. And let's take compaction for example and start asking why is there compaction? Why is it getting worse? What are we doing? that is not allowing it to get better. So uh, we were actually at a field day up, up in High Prairie a couple, couple of years ago with Kevin Elmy and Grant Lestuka, and we dug in some of the small plots just at High Prairie. Uh, there was some major changes in a really short time in that little area compared to the wheat field that was surrounding those plots. So the trick is to, well, the, the, the question is, is, okay, we make these changes, however it is, uh, how do we manage so that we can keep those changes and keep going forward the following years without, you know, collapsing the soil again or allowing that biology to continue to grow and continue to benefit us. So when I start looking at soil amendments or, you know, or inputs, and we'll just call it inputs is, I really like to have a good idea what's in those products. So I've, I've tried to take the stance that I'm not going to recommend a, a product that I don't know what's, if I don't know what's in it. And it's not about knowing the recipe of that input. It's just to know what are, what are the key fundamental ingredients in there? Is it biology? Is it whatever it might be? So so that's what I look for first and foremost, because um, it's pretty tough to recommend a product when the salesman says, just use it, it works. Um, so that's what I try and go down and then look at, all right, how, how does, how do those products need to be delivered? Where's the best place for them to be applied? Is it in the soil, on the soil, surface applied, you know, uh, foliar applied? So, kind of peel that back as well you know in terms of let's take cover crops um, you know some people have had really good success broadcasting but we still need that seed to soil contact if we look at biologicals if I ask the question okay if we're putting biology in there and we know that it doesn't exist already then why isn't why isn't it there already what have we done to the system to allow it not to survive what are we going to change so what are we going to change so that it can survive and continue to grow that makes sense so what you're saying is people should always make those those decisions based on their management and what they've done in the past and what they uh should maybe be changing in the future yeah um i mean past management for sure um not to say that it's the only thing, uh, but biology 
biology is a good one. If you're putting a living living product in the soil and inoculating the soil, now some people are going to say you shouldn't be doing that. So whatever, however you view it, it's how can we allow both if you're putting it in the soil or how can we allow what's already in the soil to survive? So that could be, you know, the use of fungicides, the use of high rates of fertilizer. It could be compaction or tillage or whatever it might be. Right. And I hear you've been doing a bit of work as well on um, soil amendments on grain operations. Mind to talk about that a little bit while we're on the topic? Yep. No, that's there again. Every every farm is a little bit different in terms of in terms of equipment and abilities and logistics. So that's part of what I what I help to do is make sure that we're we're recommending products and amendments that can be used and doesn't cause a whole bunch of chaos to the system. Some of the first ones that I'll look at are seed dressings and specifically would revolve around including instead of just synthetic fungicides or insecticides, look more at the nutrition, look at nutrition, look at hormones, look at biology and vitamins going right onto that seed. Now, is it a replacement? Um, I wouldn't say that. Everything is a tool a tool in the toolbox. So if you know you have wireworm issues, you know, uh, use the tools that you have available, but focusing on seed dressings and how can we change some of this stuff is, is kind of a go-to method for me. And one of the, one of the first things that we talk about, then the next one would be how can we get some, some humic into this into the system, uh, whether that's through liquids or through granulars. There's more and more products coming out every year. Um, I learned of two new ones just last week, so there's going to be a lot of different products and, and different ingredients brought to the table. But that would be a good way. As soon as you start putting humics into the into the soil, whether that's seed seed row or fertilizer row. That's where the logistics comes in, but that's where the discussion around managing synthetic fertilizer, uh, adding that carbon to that, that fertilizer. Now you can start looking at reducing or shifting away from certain synthetics and pulling back on some of those synthetics as well. That makes sense. And I guess on the note of pulling away from those synthetics and stuff, um, lots of people talk about integrating livestock and using manure and that sort of thing as a, as, as a soil health tool and to get some of those nutrients cycling and that sort of stuff. So um, in your experience, what have you seen for how livestock affect soil and that sort of stuff? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of people playing with that. Some have had some really good success within within their farms. Um, specifically for me, I kind of dealing with people that either have lots of livestock or none, and trying to integrate the people without livestock and trying to work with neighbors and bring cattle in has been mixed reviews. And um, the best way to put it is 
if you're going to work with a neighbor on bringing livestock into your grain farm or vice versa, you're a livestock guy working with a cow, with a grain guy, everyone needs to be on the same level and understand what the goal is. Otherwise it, it, that seems to be the real big hiccup. Um, especially the grain guys bringing cows in, then the, then the, the cows just aren't managed potentially the way they'd like to see them managed and rotated as quickly or as often as they, they would have wanted kind of thing. So um, livestock can make really big changes quickly, but they're, again, they're not, it's not because of the cow that soil's changing. It's because of the management behind them utilizing plants, uh, green growing plants longer. So whether that's grazing cover crops or a way of getting cover crops into the cropping system and being able to extract some value out of them, whether that's through grazing or silaging or green feed, whatever that might be. And then have that green growing living plant and root uh, uh, coming after a silage crop, for example. Um, cows are recyclers, you know, in terms of uh, they can take residue, let's, let's call it residue after harvest, they can take that low quality residue and recycle it and put it into, you know, what comes out the back end. Now to make big changes on fertility wise within the, within the soil, of course you need, you need high impact, lots of it. So stubble grazing in itself isn't going to have that big of a, of a change, but at least some of that residue can start being recycled and, and broke down as well. Right. In, I guess, uh, in a, adjacent to that, um, in your opinion, do the benefits to the soil health outweigh the lost year of grain production, or does it depend on the management need and the goals? That is a great question. And we're sorting through that with a couple of clients right now. Um, and the, the toughest thing to do and the toughest question to answer is that it's like, I need to X, make X amount of dollars this year off of that, not only to, you know, support land costs, whether it's payment or rental or whatever it is, you have machinery, you have seed costs, you got taxes, all that kind of stuff. So if you're not recouping this year's costs, how can we recoup that and be profitable over five years instead of just one year. Can't answer that right now. We're working on that. Um, I've seen a couple of case studies just recently, basically showing that yeah, summer grazing cattle, you know, cow calf or even yearlings, is appears to be an expensive feed source compared to grazing perennial grasses, for example. But now you start asking, okay, can we reduce fertilizer? Can we start reducing, increasing water use efficiency, reducing nutrition, increasing carbon? Some of those, some of those costs are, you know, you can't attach a cost to them right now. Uh, at least I can't anyways, because we don't know, we don't know how big the change is actually going to be. That makes sense. I guess... The last question on my list is uh, what what do you think is the most important thing uh, producers should consider when they start to work on their operations, soil health? What's what's the one thing you 
want everybody to know when they start working on this sort of stuff. Yeah. So I put some thought into that and this is going to seem rather elementary, but I've gone back to existing clients that I've worked with for a couple of years and basically have gone back to goal setting. What are the goals? What are the expectations? Sounds weird, but you know, they do change and, and it it's keeping us on track as well to make sure that we're focusing on what we want to focus on. So if you're just starting out or, or a seasoned veteran, yeah, determine, revisit your goals. They may have changed. You may, may have succeeded, but if you're down the path already, uh, kind of evaluate what's changed, both good and bad. Uh, did that exercise here a couple of weeks ago and it was, it was great. It was a great exercise. We never talk about what's changing. We always talk about, well, this didn't work or that didn't work. And I want to do this and want to do that. But yeah, some of that evaluation, if you're just starting out as well is start on a manageable area within your operation, you know, whether that's because of dollars, because of logistics, because of labor, whatever it might be, but uh, make sure you can manage it. Uh, because nothing changes without execution. And probably the last point is to observe, take photos, make notes. Um, everyone's guilty of it. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then, you know, today I was working through some stuff and it's like, man, I wish I had a photo of that. Why didn't I take a photo of that? Yeah, train yourself to take some really good photos and, and some good, really easy, quick notes. So those would be some of the starting points to really work on. And, you know, even some seasoned veterans, it's, I don't think a lot of people take good enough notes, unfortunately. Yeah. I guess there, there is a reason why the, the main mantra I've heard, as long as I've been in agriculture, is you can't manage what you don't measure. Precisely. And some of the stuff is very hard to measure right now where it's not black and white. But, um, you know, being able to do some benchmarks and look at that soil, take a photo of your soil, soil color and how it changes. Uh, yeah, it's the, the observation is, is very important and doing some benchmarking can, can help you out as well, especially if you roll the clock forward five years and kind of wonder, well, what do we do? Well, yeah, it's especially applying products, right? Like being able to jot down what you put, what you applied, where you applied it and when you applied it, you think you remember, but yeah, it gets forgotten, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, uh, have I missed anything? At the end of the day, if you're, if you, if you just start now, you can just kind of kick back and look back and, and look at what am I trying to do? it's not about having a goal and that's the goal forever. I mean, the goal can change, change a lot through a growing season or from year to year, but making sure that you also have realistic expectations behind it uh, because the environment is a massive, uh, massive variable for us. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. 
To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening. Thank you.